Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. As I mentioned, Shabbat morning services, once a year, you know, like once a year a broken clock is correct, once a year the Parsha aligns with where we are on our Wednesday morning Rashi class. This is a class that I've been teaching pretty much every week I've been in town since I've been at Beth Am, and pretty much every week in the nine years before that, my former congregation. We started in uh, Breshid Aleph Aleph in the year 2000, and we're now in the ninth chapter of Exodus, the first time around. So we go nice and slow, and there's some of the students in the room. And um, whenever we get to that Parsha, uh, it ends up being a really nice Shabbat morning because you're reading material or you're listening material that you've been studying very closely. Uh, you really, ideally, according to the Talmud, should not be confronting the Parsha for the first time when you get to shul. You're supposed to have read it um, twice already, including with one commentary, Shnai Mikra V'chad Targum. So we haven't quite finished Parsha Ve'era, but those of us in that class have been lingering in that Parsha for quite some time. And I decided, just kind of eeny, meeny, miny, mo, because uh, there was not a particular theme that I was uh, hoping to explore this afternoon, that we would study not Rashi, but another commentary on the on the verse at which we're currently sitting in that study, and it's towards the end of Parshat Ve'era. So open up to chapter 9, verse 7. Now you also have the verse on your sheet, but if you're from home, you don't have the sheet. Uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. We, we have the sheet, Rabbi. It got sent out in the email. Yeah, but some people may not have gotten that. But yeah, I was just saying, in case you don't have the sheet and you do have a chumash. Thank you, Taibo. Okay. So we're hanging out here in the precipice between the fifth plague and the sixth plague. The fifth plague being dever or pestilence, cattle disease, and the sixth plague being boils. Okay. So let's see where we have ourselves on verse 7 of chapter 9, page 365. By the way, what happened in the previous, let's go back one verse for context. In verse 6, Vayas Adonai et HaTavar Hazeh, God did this thing, the thing that God said God was going to do, Mimocharat, on the day after. Vayamot kol miknem Yitzrayim, all of the cattle of Egypt, or all of the flocks, the livestock of Egypt died. Umi miknem b'nei Yisrael, but of the livestock of the children of Israel, lo metachad, not one died. Okay? So that's the um, implementation of plague number five. And then all of a sudden in plague numbers, uh, in verse number seven, we have the following phrase, Vayishlach paro, Pharaoh sent, uh, both in Hebrew and in Hebrew, normally the word sent requires some kind of an object, a direct object or an indirect object, we don't have it. So there's an implied, he sent probably to figure out what was happening out there amongst his livestock. And behold, he learned, not a single one of the livestock of Israel died. And he hardened his heart, or his heart remained hardened. The actual, the subject of Vayichbad is not Pharaoh, but actually Lev, that the, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not send the people. Okay? You notice there's a Parsha break there. There's a pay suggesting that if you were looking at the Torah scroll, this would be the next paragraph. And then we have the following verse. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe viel Aharon God said to Moses and Aaron, each of you take handfuls, piach kibshan, 
soot of the kiln. Uzirako Moshe Hashemaima. This is still God talking and kind of predicting. Moses will throw it, meaning the soot, into the heavens. In the eyes of Pharaoh. I only see one microphone here, so when I ask for comments, I'm going to repeat them for the people who are on Zoom. Uh, as you think of the transition between verse 7 and verse 8, from the end of plague 5 to the beginning of plague 6, either anything about the way this plague is being uh, introduced or anything that you recognize compared to the pattern of previous plagues, what jumps out at you, if anything? Norm. There's not a bunch of conversation and warning to Pharaoh. Okay. And demands. Good. No warning. For the most part, even as we struggle with some of the theological implications of God continuing to, to like hammer Pharaoh for ostensibly that which God is making Pharaoh do, at least there's a warning, right? In most of the plagues. All of a sudden, Pharaoh's heart is hardened in verse seven, and whammo, we're beginning plague six. No. <laughs> There's no conversation of, if you don't release my people, then I'm going to bring the sixth plague upon you. It's just right into plague six. Anything else strikes you about either any in detail of these two verses or the transition between them? Norm? Moshe is going to throw the soot up at Aaron, just probably hold his. Right. So that verse eight has God speaking to Moses and Aaron, but only one and telling both of them to do one thing but then only one of them to do a second thing. He says to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the, from the kiln, but only Moses is going to have any job in throwing it up in the air. Okay, what else? So the question might be, why would that be? What else? Anything else jump out at you? Yes, Jackie? Right, so Jackie's saying is that at the end of the verse, we have something that could be seen as two different directions at once. Up towards the sky, and le'ene Pharaoh could be to the eyes of Pharaoh, like towards him, it could also be understood as in his eyes, meaning visible to him, but it does, it does raise a question as to what's the exact motion. Once again, we always ask in our class, if you were staging this as a play or movie, how would you stage it? What's the motion that Moses is asked to do, particularly if Pharaoh's standing right there? Is it throwing it in his face or throwing it over the air or one hand going perpendicular to the other? Barry? Ah, okay. What's this piach hakivshan? First of all, it's an interesting word, piach. We studied in Rashi class this week that it probably has to do from the root lunapeach, um, nun peichet, but the nun falls out, and lunapeach means to blow, to uh, puff out, and soot is the residue of a fire, of a kiln, that can be easily blown around, and kivshan is a kiln, but what's it doing here, right? I mean, and is, is it the idea, and I'm just wondering, is it the idea that the soot is somehow cool enough for Moses to pick it up with his hands and throw it in the air, but hot enough that when it lands, it's going to cause boils? Is there a relationship between the, the object that's being thrown here and the boils? He's, we've never been asked, he's never been asked to do something like this before. It's not putting your staff in the water, putting your staff in the air. What's going on with the soot? Good question. Good. So all of those questions are really uh, what Alan said is that why do we have to have any kind of formulaic ritual by Moses or Moses and Aaron for God to bring boils. God Can't God say, let there be boils, right? Okay, those are all good setups to the commentary we're going to read. Normally when I teach about Mincha, I bring four or five different commentators. I was really taken by one long comment by someone that I rarely teach about, just because I don't know why. I don't know why I don't. Um, what's that? Right, Moshe David Kasuto, 
also known as Umberto Casuto. He's a fascinating person in Jewish intellectual history. He was a 19th and early 20th century Italian rabbi, and he was one of the first um, well-known and beloved teachers who spanned the culture between from medieval commentary Judaism and study of Torah an academic, scholarly, historical approach to the study of the tradition. He was a scholar. He was a scholar of Semitic languages. He was a scholar of ancient history. He was a scholar of archaeology. And he, but, but he was not a maskil. He was not part of the kind of religious enlightenment that led to conservative and reform Judaism. Right? He probably uh, looked down upon those in that generation. But he was an academic with a, with a university scholar degree. But he was a very from Jew. Um, at, more acceptable than in most of Correct. What Stevie added that, and that very overlap was more common in the late 19th century in Italy than it would have been, say, in Poland or in Germany. Okay? And his commentary um, is an interesting one because on nearly every comment in his Torah, and I, I have no extensive experience with the Kusuto, I, I, I'm not, I don't know nearly as much about his commentary as I do some of the others that I study and quote, but you see an overlap of a traditional from love of text and the mind of an academic scholar, right? Um, bringing them all in together. Look what he says. Piskashi sheet. I don't know why he calls it piska as opposed to uh, uh, nega, but on the sixth plague, shechin. I'm going to read in the Hebrew. I'll translate phrase by phrase in the English. You can also follow along in English. Gam lifne hamaka hashishit. Also regarding this sixth plague, the one that we're about to read about, which is understood to be the third of the second cycle. So there are different ways of dividing the plagues. In Rashi class, two weeks ago, Barry was talking about how the first five and the second five might be thought of in a different category. There's another way of, of thinking about them, that the first six come in two waves of three that have patterns that you can map from the first wave onto the second one. So the sixth plague... Right, and we see a remnant of that in the in the last three ways in which we um, take wine or grape juice from our cup on Pesach. So the the sixth plague, which remember is the third of the second uh, cycle, which means by implication it can be compared to the third of the first cycle. What's the third plague? Kinim, lice. Okay. Lo ba'ahatra'a. There was no warning. Kishem shalo which is also the case regarding the first, third plague of the first cycle. Let's go to the videotape. Any Warner Wolf fans? Anyone? Let's look at the transition to the third plague. So, um, Kinim. Uh, when do the frogs leave? Okay, look at page 361. The bottom of page 361, chapter 8, verse 10. The dead frog corpses piled up in heaps. It's the land stunk. Verse 11. So this is the end of the second plague. Pharaoh saw there was some kind of like a, a pause. Once the, the uh, negative, negative impacts of the plague stopped, he hardened his heart again. Didn't listen to them. As God had predicted. Boom. Next verse. We have no warning between the second and the third plague. God said to Moses, tell Aaron, extend your staff, smack the dust of the earth, and they will become 
uh, lice. So Kosuto says plague six, which is plague the second third plague, is similar to plague three, the first third plague, in that there's no warning. That's the first thing he says. Hakat, yeah, good, good. Another association. I mean, many of the plagues begin that way, but this also looks like something fine and easily blown up, blown like the afar that can turn into the plague. Hakatuv misaperlan miyad. miyad. The text actually tells us immediately, meaning without warning. Now in bold, this is a, a quote of the verse. By God said to Moses and Aaron, like we just read, Take both of you handfuls of soot, um, etc. Now he goes on. So he's answered the first, he's, he's first drawn a comparison between the third plague and the sixth plague. Madua yeshlehem lakachat piach kibshan lo namar. Why it was the case? that they had to take the soot of the kiln was not said. So this is, he's asking a more specific question than the general one that Alan was asking. Alan was asking, why is there any ritual required? Kasut is saying, why this ritual? It's kind of strange. What's, what's a kiln and soot got to do with this moment of the story? Vilich ora, at first glance, near e hadavar, muzar, the thing seems strange. This is a very subtle point. Rashi never would have said that. There's something like the fact he, he's he's taking a look at this with a with with an academic, not a cynical eye, but a sufficiently critical eye. Rashi never looks at the Torah and says this is strange. Rashi might think it's strange, but he'll he'll lead you to an answer without in any way kind of suggesting there's anything odd going on in the text. Kasuto says this is an odd thing, right? Why why did it happen that way? Aval yesh lasim but you can actually we should actually. Pay attention to this specifically. Shehakivshan hu beit hacharoshet. Kivshan, the kiln, is a kind of a factory, right? A beit hacharoshet is a factory. Shabo ovdim avoda be'esh, within which workers do work with fire, right? So I don't know if anyone has ever spent time in a kiln, right? So he's thinking of uh, Barry. Yes, we have we have a kilner here, uh, right? So it can be a single um, apparatus, or it can be like a like a room, right, within which there are many furnaces going. And this is a hot, smoky, unpleasant, perhaps, place to work if you're working factory hours, not your own hours making kiddush cups for the bar mitzvah boys of Tumble Betham. Uvein hashar, sorfimba esh et And amongst other things that might happen in a kiln, particularly in ancient kilns, they would use fire to do what? to burn the bricks. To burn which bricks? The bricks with which they were asked to do their very hard labor. Indeed, even though the Egyptians, before the Roman era, again, this is the language of a scientist, of a scholar, right? Even though it's the case, that the ancient Egyptians, for the most part, used for the, used the majority of their bricks as being bricks that were dried out by the heat of the sun. But right? think about it, right? The simpler, it might take longer, but the simpler way to have something be dried out in the ancient world, if you don't have like a operating furnace, is just to have it be, you know, laid out in a hot medieval, medieval um, Middle East sun, and that would turn them into bricks. And even though most of the bricks that were done 
in ancient Egypt before the Roman period were done that way. One second, Barry. It was also the case, he's saying from his historical studies, that you could find bricks in ancient Egypt that were made by burning in a kiln. Thank you. So we've got uh, from the local expert that if you do make bricks by drying it out in the sun, it might last you a bit, but the rain's going to break it down. If you fire it in a furnace, it's going to last a lot longer. So that was an important technological advance, and that became more common after the Roman period. But they, even in the early Egyptian period, they did it a little bit. And specifically when it cards regard to buildings, from the nineteenth um, dynasty of Egyptian kings, Ashushelet is a dynasty. She'eleha shayach Ramses Hasheni, to which dynasty the second Ramses was connected, who Oto Paro she'ibeded Israel, the very pharaoh that enslaved um, Israelites. Ayin Lamala Amud. He tells us look earlier in my commentary if I look more on that. Umimei Hashushelet Asrim. And from the days of the 20th dynasty, he's saying archaeological studies have shown, right? I didn't check out his sources, but I have no reason to disbelieve him. Archaeological studies have shown and carbon dating has shown Egyptian bricks burned in a kiln as old as the dynasty associated with the pharaoh who enslaved the Egyptians. No carbon dating? The no? Okay. What's that? I told Tova to come to this class, but Tova is under the weather right now, so she's excused. Okay? So from the knowledge he had at the time, it's they seem confident that you had this technology working as old as the dynasties that are associated with the oppression of the Israelites. Okay. Can anyone see where he's going here? Right? He's sort of telegraphing it. And it's said above, Sha'asiyat halavanim hayta achat avodot hakashot hamutalot al-bnei Yisrael b'Mitzrayim. It's said above where, we'll look at it in a second, chapter 1, verse 14, that making bricks was actually some of the harshest labor that was uh, imposed upon the Israelites in Egypt. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 14 that we read this morning. Actually, I don't know if we read it this morning. Chapter 1, verse 14 of Shemot, that will be page 319, okay? So as the enslavement is getting intense, verse 13, The Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly, embittered their lives with hard work, and with material and with the back-breaking, sweat-inducing duty of making bricks, in addition to back-breaking work in the field. So, Kasuto saying, the thing that took place in the kiln was associated with some of the most oppressive work that this regime was imposing upon the Israelites. Back to our uh, pages on the bottom, page two. The Kanire, Yesh Kesher, Sorry, I skipped the line. The dafka avodatam ha'ikarit. In fact, it was you could say that it was the uh, the this most significant aspect of the work they were doing. Look at chapter five, verse seven. There's a, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but there's a scene at the end of the book of Parshat Shmot where after the first time, um, 
the uh, there's a complaint. Pharaoh makes their job harder, not easier. Right? Says, not only do you have to make the same amount of bricks, but I'm going to take away. You have to gather the straw to make it. So it was the making of the straw in a uh, in a challenging way that was considered to be like the central aspect of the backbreaking work they were doing. Barry, yeah. So Barry telling us that the um, the pyramids in Egypt that have lasted were all kiln fired and and probably to great discomfort, to say the very least, of the people who were doing it. Okay. Um, third line from the bottom of page two: the kanyere yesh kesher ben shnei it appears that there is a connection between these two things. What two things? The fact that the uh, sixth plague of boils was begun with soot of the kiln, and the fact that the Israelites were hard at work where? Possibly in the kilns burning the bricks. Ashan hakivshan, or eshen hakivshan, mitpazer meherab avir. The smoke from a kiln, as soon as it leaves the kiln, it dissipates very quickly into the air, right? There's no remnant of the smoke. I mean, we're probably breathing it, but you can't trace it in the same way. Not sure exactly what he means here. Literally, it says the bricks are brought either early or late outside the factory. I think he's saying one way or another, whether being... Okay, but what one way or other, the bricks that are made in the kiln don't stay at the kiln, right? Eventually, they're made in the kiln to be brought out to be built with, right? So they eventually leave the factory. So the smoke leaves the factory, the bricks leaves the factory... What doesn't leave the factory? The, and the? The soot. Aval hapiach. But the black soot that represented the hard labor of the Israelites, nishar kayam al kotle hakivshan, stays in existence as evidence on the walls of the kiln. Uh, I can't help myself from making the connection of what the walls of the uh, crematoria in, in Poland still look like, right? So it's not... Thousands of years later, it's decades later, but it's still there. And, 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 and until and unless those are, those walls come crumbling down and they should never come crumbling down because they are a testament to what took place to us. You literally see, not symbolically see, you literally see the blackened walls of the, of the crematoria that were created with the soot of our people. Right. And that, and obviously Kasuta wasn't referring to that because he's living before the show although I think he lived until he lived until the 1950s. I don't, I don't know when he's writing this particular commentary. Doesn't matter. And it symbolizes and exemplifies the soot, the hard work, of the workers. Therefore, it makes total sense. That this very soot, which represents the harshest part and the most enduring part of the harshest labor, that was created, as it were, from the sweat of the brows or of the noses of those enslaved, would be the very thing by which the punishment would fall. Where? On the skin. That's why it's shin, right? Because where, where does soot mark you? On your skin. So you take the soot that marked the walls, and clearly mark the Israelites who are making the, the bricks, and that's going to be the vehicle by which the skin of the, of the oppressors, of the enslavers, is going to be also burned, not blackened by soot, but reddened by boils. Okay? So all of a sudden, you can't imagine a more appropriate way for this plague to begin. 
Yeah, so what Alan said, it's one of the most unusual and I would say apt midah connected midah measure for measure. What started out as, as Kasuda saying, this is odd, now lands after his study with us, right, as the, as the most non-odd way to begin any of the plays. Okay, now he goes on to part two, right, through the question of another, kind of responding to another question that we had around the table, which is why it is that Moses and Aaron were treated differently in this verse in the beginning. They were treated the same, they're different. Don't find it difficult, the fact. What fact? Both Aaron and Moses were commanded to take full handfuls of the soot of the kiln. Uh, afterwards, it said that only Moses is going to throw it in the air. We talked about that. Why is that the case? Moshe Levado, and only Moses. Lifnei paro, in front of Pharaoh. Belishum mila, without any explicit word, navu. What's Aaron doing with his handfuls? Right, the way the Torah tells it, Moses and Aaron each scoop up soot, and then Aaron just stands there with soot in his hands. What's going on? He's not the one throwing it up. Kanire aleinu l'ta'er lanu says, it makes sense for us to explain or describe the scene in this way. Two men walk into a kiln. Sounds like a joke. Two men walk into the kiln. Two of them take handfuls. Because a chofen is a, hand, is a handful. So full handfuls. Piach of soot, hakivshan, from the kiln. They don't just hold it in their hands. They take that Soot, and even though the Torah doesn't tell us to do this way, it puts it in a vessel. Me'ain kufsa, okay, some kind of a container, a box. paro. This goes to your question, Jackie. Like, where is this taking place? According to Kasuto, you, they each had two scoopfuls. That's, those scoopfuls were, were, um, denoting an amount. How much soot? The amount of soot that two men could carry, and then put in a vessel, because Pharaoh's not at the kiln, right? They're taking it from the kiln, you think it's still going to be in their hands? You ever tried to hold sand for more than a half second, right? If you're in the kiln, and you can be sure that Pharaoh's chambers are far away from the kiln, and they tried to carry it in their hands, it would dissipate. They put it in a box in order to bring it in front of Pharaoh. They're not going to go in front of the king with hands blackened by soot. This was the amount they were taking. They put it in a container. They washed their hands. And then they go and have an audience with Pharaoh. And when they were finally standing in front of Pharaoh, Moses would take all of the soot in the vessel, and he did this. So it's not that Moses, Aaron didn't have a job. His job was he needed two, two full double hands worth of soot for this particular act. Um, where am I? Page four. We have proof from this, from what that which we learn in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, verse 12. So open up your uh, Chumashim to that chapter. This is Parshat Achremot. We read this also on Yom Kippur morning. And it's the, it's the example of the ritual for how the uh, Kohen Gadol would operate on Yom Kippur. Verse 12. 
So just start for the verse 11 of Hikriva Rona Parachatat, that Aaron would uh, slaughter the bull for the um, sin offering. Asher lo that he had, Vichiper Badova Adbeito, he would offer atonement for himself and himself and his household. Vishachat at Parachatat Asher lo, and he would slaughter it. Vilakach Meloha Machta Gachaleesh. He would take um, kind of a full panful, a machta is a panful, of Gachaleesh, of the coals. From the altar, uh, before God, and also two handfuls of soot, of incense, daka, finely uh, ground. We've read this verse hundreds of times, and before I read Kasuto, I never stopped to think. Does Aaron have, does Moshe, sorry, does the, does the Aaron, does the high priest have two hands or three hands? Because in this verse, He's taking uh, uh, a full panful of glowing coals and also two handfuls of soot. That's three hands. I'm not a mathematician, but that's three hands. Kasuto says, see, the same thing is happening in this verse that was happening in Egypt. So he quotes the verse, uh, go down to uh, one, two, three, four, five lines of the Hebrew at the end. Barur hadavor, davar. The case is clear. If the two hands of the Kohen were filled with spices, as it says it is, he would not have had a hand unless he's like like doing it with his elbows, right? I don't know. What are you laughing at? Right. Obvious to him, right? That if you read that verse carefully, it is suggesting an octopus, right? Or there's a step missing that we're not told about. But rather, the intent is, and he says, compared to Mishnah uh, Yoma chapter 5, verse 1, which we'll look at in a second. What did the Kohen do? He takes two scoopfuls of the incense. And then he puts it into the ladle, right? He's not holding it indefinitely. That is an amount. It's not the key part of the ritual. The amount is two scoopfuls. Look as he, how, how he connects it to uh, Mishnah Yoma. So Mishnah Yoma is mostly the law is not about what we think of as Yom Kippur, the fast, but the ritual in the temple. And look what it says in the opening Mishnah of this fifth chapter of Yoma. They brought, the, the, the assistant priest would bring out the kaf, the ladle. Kaf in modern Hebrew is a spoon, but in, in rabbinic Hebrew, it's a ladle, like the, a big scooping uh, spoon. And the coal pan. He would take the fill of his of his hands, and how do we know it's hands and not hand? Because chofnav is plural. It's not chofno, it's chofnav. So he would fill his hands, venatan hakaf, and he'd take the total amount he'd scooped up, and he'd put it in the ladle. Hagadol lefi godlo, vakatan lefi kodno. The big one according to its bigness, and the small one according to its smallness. Anyone know what that might refer to? Size of the hands. The koanim were different sizes. Some koanim were six foot, six foot two, and some were five foot four. And there's commentary in the Mishnah that says that based on which kohen was um, serving at a time, they had different sized ladles. Because the idea was that if you were going to scoop up this much, you should have a ladle big enough to put into. But if you were going to scoop up this much, you shouldn't be embarrassed by your tiny little hands that it wasn't going to fill up the ladle because you should have the full... Um, honor of doing the ritual no matter how big your hands were. Some people have big hands, but some people have small small hands. Okay? 
Vekach hayta midata, and that was its size, which means that that each Kohen had their own kind of proprietary ladle for the ritual. Ladle, as you know, one of the, we talked about this in Raj class, one of the English words that most sounds like it's from Yiddish. Okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page. Ladle and far-fetched. Natal et hamachta bimino, he took the fire pan in his right hand, viet hakaf, and uh, the ladle filled with the amount of soot, or in this case incense, that had been taken by both of his hands in his left hand. That's how he performed the ritual. Kasuta says, read that back into our scene, and it becomes very obvious. Aaron and Moses go into the kiln. Take how much soot? The amount of soot that you both can fill up in both of your hands for heaping handfuls of soot. Put it into a box, even though it's not uh, written there. Go wash your hands so that you can go in front of Pharaoh like a mensch. And then once you're in front of Pharaoh, who's initiating this plague? Some plagues are initiated by Aaron. Some plagues are initiated by Moshe. This one's initiated by Moshe. Throw it up, either up into the sky or into Pharaoh's eyes or both at the same time. I wanted to bring this to you just as an example of a different way of doing uh, Torah study than your classic medieval uh, commentaries because he's weaving together history and science and archaeology, uh, but still with a loving um, uh, um, loyalty to this text. He wants to solve this so that when you're done reading it, all of a sudden the scene makes sense. First, he makes the scene not make sense by forcing you to read it slowly, and then he resolves the not making sense by saying, is actually a very easy way of explaining all of this. Yeah. So um, I'm now more committed to studying and teaching Kasuto than I had been in the past. I just hadn't come across him in quite some time, and I thought this was worth a lengthy uh, sit-down with you. Uh, comments, questions, reactions? Yeah, what Stevie said for those on Zoom is that his resolution resolves the two, two questions he was working on, but leaves open others, which is, uh, you know, Mo, Mo, if, if it was just volume, as Stevie said, Moses could have done the action twice. Why is Aaron involved in the bringing the soot out, right? You know, I, I could produce an answer to that. doesn't mean yeah. it's the answer, but it's an interesting question. Like, why is it significant that both representatives of the people get their hands dirty with the soot that Kasuta reminds us is symbolizing the very burden that the people are under? That's a good question. Uh, Norm, was there a hand down over there? So uh, Norm is pointing out that sometimes uh, God tells Moses to tell Aaron to do something. This time, God is speaking to both of them. Taibel, I see your hand up. Yes, if it's okay, I was just interested on the happenstance that you found Casuto and decided to look at him where you don't usually. Yeah, so um, at some point this week, I guess after Rashi class on Wednesday, when I realized that I'd be teaching Shabbat Mincha and it was on the Parsha, Parsha that we are in class, I'm like, well, where, where did we stop? I'm committed to teaching Rashi on this verse this coming Wednesday, but who else has something interesting to say? So, you know, in a former era, that would be, you know, going through my bookshelf. And in this era, it's called Safaria. So basically, I had a fun hour on Safaria, reading as many commentaries as I could on this verse until I found one who, uh, I mean, they're all interesting, of course, but uh, that was that was worthy of exploration. Originally, I was going to bring several, but once I got to Casuto um, and got a sense of what he's saying, I thought it was worth lingering on, on the entire commentary. But it was it was as as random as that. It was it was what was on Safaria on a verse that I'd already committed to teaching to anyone but Rashi, because you have to come to class Wednesday morning to get the Rashi on this. I'm going to repeat all of this on Wednesday. No, I'm not. Um, Okay, Kasuto, uh, may his memory be a blessing, and uh, may we come back to him sooner rather than later. 
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.